Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the nonprofit news feed, well, we're bringing you some news, surprise, about the sector. Uh, there's been a few things going on <laughs> impacting the overall economics of you know regional banks and pieces like that. But our main piece actually ties to how the UN is being called on by nonprofits. So Nick, uh, how's it going? It's going good, George. Happy March. We are starting our story off with, as you mentioned, that NGOs are calling on the United Nations to advocate for reproductive rights in the United States. So nearly 200 human rights organizations, including major international NGOs like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, have sent, quote, urgent appeals to the United Nations uh, calling on the body to intervene and ensure that the United States products, protects reproductive rights, as reported by the Washington Post. So, of course, this appeal follows the Supreme Court ruling and the uh, Dobbs decision, which overturned the constitutional right to an abortion. So at least a dozen states have already moved to ban or heavily restrict abortions. And the organizations argue that the U.S. is violating its obligations under international human rights law and are calling on the U.N. to mandate uh, stakeholders to take action, including visits to the country uh, and calling for the private sector to intervene to protect reproductive rights. So it's kind of interesting. I think in the United States, we often like to think of the UN as in some ways almost an arm of US foreign policy and that it's the global South that needs intervention from uh, human rights organizations, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, the body has actually deemed that the US is now in need of uh, intervention, or at least those organizations petitioning the UN to do so. So uh, kind of a, an interesting interesting narrative here. Uh, will it work? N- no, <laughs> right? The US has independent laws and courts, and the UN can't overrule uh, the Supreme Court or anything, but certainly an interesting tactic in attempting to bring international pressure uh, to the United States and what now makes it an outlier uh, compared to other countries. Yeah, we call it the United States, but we're not united on apparently basic human rights. And I think the way these nonprofits did this is actually fairly brilliant to call international attention uh, from the UN on regional areas of the United States that are imposing draconian far overreaching violations of fundamental human rights as they, you know, I don't know, play whatever political games slash oddly religiously motivated, but uh, th- these are humans' lives. And disproportionately, uh, there are low-income audiences that are hurt because they can't afford to find and seek the treatment that they that they would need in certain situations. and And so... No, the UN, I don't anticipate, will be stepping in, but it is a, uh, you know, it is a way to call attention from the international audience about about what's going on here. And while the U.S. may, you know, 
claim and say things as like we are the the pinnacle of democracy and the object you know, the the object that you have to aim for like you know uh, I think it's important to sort of show the show the problems therein with uh, with our policies as they affect again fundamental human rights. Yeah, George, I think that's a great a great assessment, and in some ways, it also does the inverse. It makes it highlights that the United States is in fact an outlier and it puts pressure on the United States because guess what? When democracy is weak at home and human rights are weak in the United States, we that decreases our ability and secondarily the ability of major international organizations to call out rights in other countries, right? We are now on weaker footing to advocate for reproductive justice and access to choice in other countries because we've regressed here at home, right? And if we believe in human rights and the the right to free and fair elections and all these things that we supposedly advocate for on the international stage, guess what? Uh, falling backwards within our own borders on things like free and fair elections, guess what percentage of Americans believe the last presidential election was free and fair? who knows, um, we lose legitimacy. And I think that this advocacy calls on the U.S. to not only advocate for the benefit of Americans, but to step up its own legitimacy and ability to promote rights around the world. All right. Moving into our next story, George, this is the talk of the town. It's the front page headline. It's the Substack Twitter dialogue. This is, this is the story of the past five days, and it's a tough one. Uh, So I'm going to throw it to you because I think you have a much better uh, kind of grasp of this situation. But uh, we have an article here from the San Francisco Standard that highlights the Silicon Valley bank collapse putting affordable housing in limbo. So that is kind of the, the nonprofit social impact angle of this. But George, I think this is too big a story just not to talk about on this podcast because the secondary and third order effects of this will be profound and already are. The collapse of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, the other uh, precarious uh, situation of other banks of that size, the FDIC stepping in. Uh, There's a whole narrative here about federal regulations. George, what do we think it's important for our listeners to know about the collapse of SVB? Well, this was a story that was evolving by the hour, quite literally, as SVB went into sort of receivership, meaning FDIC steps in. I think the Biden administration and Yellen did the right thing by backstopping the depositors, you know, not not the shareholders, the depositors, the folks that thought that they were keeping money in a safe, uh, safe, secure cash in in accounts. Uh, they're they're backing that, and even though Monday saw you know what effectively was a a threat of a contagion on run on other banks, uh, it seems like you know knock on wood that that has actually been stemmed by the quick reaction by the Biden administration in terms of saying we are going to go above and beyond in terms of protecting depositors. Why this matters for nonprofits? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know if you uh, deal with money. Uh, this is of concern. If you hold money in a, you know, regional bank or actually rely on the amazing work that regional banks 
offer to communities offering small business loans, supporting local communities. Like you really don't want a regional run on the bank. This is actually a fundamental support system for uh, developing communities across the country. Because if you can only go to the top five banks for your loan and whatnot, uh, the the barrier to entry is so much higher and so much less connected to the community. Like this touches a lot more than I think folks realize. And just in this one article, they were just explaining how Silicon Valley Bank was actually going to be, you know, hurting organizations, uh, including the the Kelsey. Uh, Michaela Connery is a, a longtime friend of the pod and doing incredible work. If you remember, she has a 112 home project in the Civic Center. But like, frankly, all of that is done with the type of financing and support uh, that was <laughs> that was being uh, impacted uh, through SVP and even potentially others. So I was very grateful to see uh, depositors getting covered. And so Honestly, if you if you're just looking at this from the narrative of hey, there were some tech bros that you know got too risky and they all deserve to lose their money, like pause for a second and realize that the depositors in these accounts are real organizations with real payroll and real purpose out there, um, including not limited to uh, groups you know like the you know the Kelsey building real things in in the world. So this touches everyone. I'm very hopeful that you know we've seen the sort of stop thing of the spreading of contagion because this is you know it is no longer based on economic reality as opposed to social fear uh, which has uh, a chance to really get out of hand and, and frankly burn things down that you don't want burned down <laughs> i think that's the technical term <laughs> not we don't we're not a fan of uh fires here uh no, George, I think that's a great analysis. I think the other piece of this, right, not to turn this into an economics podcast, but obviously the last time that there were national concerns about banking collapses was in the financial crisis of 2008, in which there was a regulatory regime put in place after that, uh, in an attempt to kind of make this not possible to happen. Do you think that we're going to see more regulations, less regulations. Do you think that, like, what are kind of like, what does that environment need to look like, even from like a social justice lens, right? Like, does this put kind of like undue pressure on the federal government to intervene? Like, I'm I'm just kind of curious what you think of like what comes next from like a policy perspective, and how might that impact or not impact nonprofits? Well, first, I want to make this absurdly practical for organizations out there and just minding that after what I said about regional banks, do understand that FDIC only covers $250,000, which was fine for the 1930s, is not fine for our modern day banking needs. And frankly, I think that needs to be revisited, especially, especially if we want the sort of diversity of regional banks supporting communities in a way that only they can with capital to deploy. I, I think it's very positive, but from a, you know, defend your own, take a look at whether or not you have got a disproportionate amount in uh, an account that may only be covered up to $250,000 because 
just because panic may have passed, it is a certain question of economic viability of your organization, which is your primary concern. I get the higher minded, let's support our credit unions. I'm all there, but pay attention to protecting the the impact that you have promised to your communities. And if that means the diversification of accounts, uh, might be a good time to do it. Big picture, yeah, people much smarter, <laughs> thank God, than 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 us are, are going to be paying attention to it in terms of regulations that I would I'd say if you're a nonprofit interested in this, you want policies that are going to increase the stability and protection of these regional banks. So one, increasing that FDIC limit would be tremendously helpful because I don't know, maybe every hundred years you want to adjust for things like inflation. And number two is adjusting how, frankly, some of these folks play with long-term risk-adjusted assets. It's a fancy way of saying like, if someone's going to like lock up their money for 10 years in a thing and then not account for the fact that they lost money, there needs to be a mark to uh, asset mark to market of just being freaking honest of like, if you've lost money, because when other people like, you know, alpha, whoever figure out that you have lost a ton of money that you haven't reported, that's when panic steps in. And this is not too dissimilar to when, you know, you're you're looking at crisis communications for your organization that if you had some economic questioning viability concerns, that's a moment where you need to have a plan. So look, I would recommend you also have intelligent crisis communications in general for uh, who and how to talk to potential donors or even, you know, a financial question. Like use this as an opportunity <laughs> that that sort of overused trope of crisis Like use this as an opportunity to talk about the intelligent financial measures that your nonprofit has and has in place. It'll build confidence with uh, donors even uh, showing that uh, you're uh, a responsible actor out there. I think, um, I think there's a real vacuum of that type of leadership right now and step into it, especially if you're the right type of organization, step into that. Yeah, I think that that's, that's great advice, right? And nonprofits uh, provide services to people who also have money in banks. And uh, this affects everyone, constituents of nonprofits, nonprofit board members, all of them. So I think that's a great analysis. All right, I'll move us into our next story. And this comes from WPSD Local 6. And this is about local nonprofit organizations in Kentucky finding themselves in a tough spot. Uh, Some are being forced to cancel fundraisers and other events to avoid paying sales tax. So House Bill 8 passed during the previous regular legislative session and went to effect at the beginning of 2023 and has added sales tax to things like web design, marketing, and social event planning. Normally, nonprofits are exempt from paying Kentucky's 6% sales tax, but that is not the case when it involves fundraisers hosted by nonprofits. And the article goes on to talk about the friends of the McCracken County Library Group that uh, now has to pay sales tax on some of their in-real-life fundraising events. Uh, What do we think about this, George? It's absolutely absurd. Organizations working for the public interest, organizations working for the public interest of communities should, frankly, you know, pay the necessary reasonable sales tax. But when you get into paying sales tax on like a fundraising event, 
when you get into things like paying it for, you know, web design and digital marketing, like these sites need to be updated so that the community can get access to the following resources. If suddenly it costs 6% more to do that, nonprofits operate on a razor thin margin. Also, by the way, you're not making that much in tax. Like if you want clever tax, you know, tax avenues, like they are out there, but this is absurd, right? The, the dollars that get put to work at a nonprofit are so disproportionately valuable compared to those put to work at for profits. Just for one, for instance, in terms of overall, you know, GDP, nonprofits represent about 5%, yet 10% of the labor force comes from nonprofits. Like that's just 2x right there. And by the way, it's far more valuable when you're looking at a local organization. By the way, most of the costs at the nonprofit are actually salary, right? Our payroll. And by the way, the state makes money on the payroll tax, right? Like you're going to get that money anyway. This is so short-sighted and ignorant of what actually needs to happen for nonprofits. It hurts my brain. It literally is hurting my brain right now that they can be this dumb at holding back the type of work that these organizations are doing. Grr. Rant, end rant, maybe. I found this yeah. and I was just so frustrated by this news. I was like, what a small little house bill that is so ignorant of the truth of nonprofits. Oh my God. Stop it. Oh. Um. <laughs> Nothing George, gets me more so, angry than tax and nonprofits. You hit my third rail. You hit my third rail. I'm triggered. We know uh, how much of a fan of a bill of this. <laughs> um, this is the hill I'll die on. No, I hear you. House Bill 8 in Kentucky. I'm coming for you. Right. Someone had to put, take time into thinking this out and writing it down. And just like that, like that's bad thinking. Like, Yeah. Not good. I guess we'll continue to follow this. Hopefully we don't see this in other states and hopefully Kentucky passes a bill next year that rescinds this silliness. Yeah. Why nickel and dime the nonprofits in Kentucky? Come on. Anyway, uh, taking us into our next story. Or this is this is another one that this one this one kind of works up me. Uh, this comes from the Vanderbilt Hustler. And uh it cites uh, a note at the bottom of a February 16 email from the Peabody Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion uh, regarding the shooting at Michigan State University. So this appears to be um, a statement about that. What was interesting about that statement, however, uh, was that the statement was written by ChatGPT. So we have an AI statement about a shooting on a college campus uh, after which they apologized for George. <laughs> Why? Why? Like, come on. Chat GPT, good for nearly everything involving writing. Except the one time, the one time, if there was ever one time not to use it, sending a communication about healing after a traumatic violent event. Like, come on. Here are the different layers that I see here. Uh, one is there's a sad truth actually about how we see elected officials and schools responding to shootings with frankly 
glorified form letters. Glorified form letters that they search and replace. And you can do this. And I, I see folks on LinkedIn and communications experts showing how each time there's an event like this, it is a find and replace for, frankly, the location, the number of victims. And that's how sorry we are. It's a form letter process. So on the surface of it, I'm not surprised you turned to ChatGPT because otherwise it was a form letter because we have a bigger problem going on. So that's one layer of this, this sad layer. Uh, the other is that you're going to need to, as an organization, pay attention to how you are consciously using ChatGPT because what's going to happen is there is a rising generation of young people coming into your organization, and not just young people, I want to be fair, from people that are curious of using a very powerful AI writing tool that don't understand that actually it is detectable. You can use tools like gpt0.me, and we're going to have resources in the show links. And by the way, we're going to have tons of resources around the responsible adoption and use of ChatGPT and GPT models in general that are going to be proliferating. The problem is we have a very powerful new technology, but if you are just using it out of the box without training, without context, and without the properly trained brand and voice of your organization and the purpose you're using it for, it's detectable. And what's more, it's reprehensible when you do it for something that requires careful, thoughtful emotion and words that are genuine because the medium is the message in that. And if it's clear that I can detect using tools that you're not aware of, that someone on your staff is writing very sensitive, heartfelt appeals or messages, you have a problem that you cannot ignore because the genie is out of the box. Genies don't live in boxes. Genies out of the lamp. What comes out of what? What is what? What comes out of the box? I mean... I need ChatGPT to help me with what comes. It's not out of the box, though. These things need to be trained into your organization in intentional ways. It is too big to ignore this tool because it is so effective at accelerating your writing, and the quality can increase. I'm using the word can increase if used correctly. And I pulled this story out because here's what I wouldn't want to happen. Your organization to come under scrutiny because you were simply trying to adopt new technology, but you did it in a thoughtless way. This is something that I think if I were the executive level, if I were on the board of a nonprofit, I'd be paying very close attention to how your organization is using it because they're using it. Someone in your organization is using it. Someone is playing with it. There were 200 million people that popped on to ChatGPT just in the first couple months. Okay. That means somebody is probably already tinkering with it at your organization. Be intentional. And I'm like, shameless plug, we are working on exact tools for organizations to use it with a properly trained voice and the properly trained way for how you have it as a first draft, have editing techniques to accelerate thoughtful communication. But this is... um. This is something that you have to pay attention to. And I, I felt like this resonated for me in terms of the tangible example of why. Yeah, George, I think that's exactly right. And in this particular instance, people want empathy. Like the empathy is the point of the message. And yeah. 
to find that it was generated by a machine doesn't feel all that empathetic. You can't automate empathy. You simply can't. Yeah. Yeah. Important. I think a lot, lot to talk about, and we will continue to do so on this podcast. Uh, but George, we've had two kind of kind of a, a downer of a story. But how about a feel good story? Yeah. What do What do we have this week? All right. This comes from CB6, CBS Six News <laughs> Richmond WTVR WTVR. Oh, I need my my radio voice. Uh, and this is about a nonprofit in Richmond. It is the Central Virginia Chapter of Dress for Success that was started by Dr. Chantel Shambliss, created this chapter. And uh, the nonprofit serves 22 counties with career coaching, entrepreneurship training, GDE, uh, GED prep, and of course, Uh, clothing as well. And it's all about empowering women uh, to determine what success looks like for them. Yeah, just uh, awesome organization doing awesome stuff, helping disadvantaged women uh, get ahead. Love to see it. Yeah, it's interesting. The the clothes for work is absolutely still in play for for many professions, though. I, I'd imagine a, a dress for success 2.0 being one that actually would maybe set you up with you know, a strong remote working environment potentially and, and what that looks like for the, you know, the next generation. Because, you know, if you, if you don't have, you know, camera equipment, if you don't have certain setups, you know, and, and basic training there, um, that is how I think, you know, rem- remote workers for, for interviews and pieces are, are also being judged. So I think there's a, there's an opportunity for the, the next generation of dress for success, uh, out there. Uh, all right. Absolutely. Well, uh, another plug for our unbelievable ad grant, our ad grant cohort, which starts coming at the end of March, uh, which is going to bring you from zero to 60, working alongside whole whale experts in the ad grant. Again, this is 10K per month unlocked for driving traffic to the most important content on your site. Uh, this, uh, this cohort is again, only once a year cause it takes us so much work to do, uh, because of the time and attention our team pays in the, uh, in the work that we are doing in these 90 minute co-working sessions. This isn't like press play and then sit back. This is, we are working alongside the folks in, uh, in this cohort and it's, you know, it's a good one. All right, Nick, I have a question for you. I mean, oh you already knew I did. Oh boy! So wait a minute. Why? Why did the family donate their vacuum cleaner to Goodwill? <laughs> I don't know. Frankly, it was uh, it was just gathering dust. Wait, right? that doesn't even because make vacu- sense. <laughs> the vacuum cleaner gathers dust, like right? So it vacuums it up. I think right. it's really great when you have to explain why the pun joke is funny. <laughs> But also, it's like a metaphor, right? Like it's not a metaphor. It's like what people say if something is sitting there gathering dust, but it also uh-huh. like, it gathers dust because it's a vacuum. It's like a like a double entendre. This is high high level humor, all right, Nick. So if you don't appreciate it, that's fine. But that's that's one for our audience. Alrighty, see you out there. See you, George. This has been using the whole whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us.
Thanks, as always, to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 